On this episode, we sit down with Oliver Artery. Oliver's background ranges from Fortune 500 consulting to tech startups to nonprofit work in Argentina, all the way to real estate development. Oliver is an eclectic professional and entrepreneur. Oliver is currently employed at Google and is developing an Airbnb and Bourbon Lounge in his free time here in Louisville, Kentucky. We definitely learned a lot in our conversation with Oliver, and think you too will find something valuable in the wide-ranging discussion. Enjoy. All right, Oliver, thanks for coming on to the How To Business Show. Very impressive resume and background. I'm really excited to get into all of it, but let's start with kind of how we were made aware of uh, what who you are, what you have going on with this mixed-use project right here in Butchertown. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Sure. And, and just to connect the dots, because there are many dots in Louisville, I think Kristen was kind of the, the true connector here. And so Kristen, if you ever listen to this, just want to say thank you. <laughs> and uh, your friends seem very nice. And Kristen is an amazing person. So just wanted to uh, make that fact known. Huge shout out to Kristen. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so, you know, like a lot of people, you know, you get into real estate through many different ways. I'd always had an interest in it. Uh, that interest uh, sort of existed when I used to live in New York City, but New York City, as you can imagine, the price point to get into real estate is way higher. And if you're trying to do development, which is what's going on down the street, that's just another you know set of calculus, which is a lot more complex. And so when I relocated to Louisville, I'm, I'm from Louisville, I, I thought, you know, now's the time to get into real estate. And I started with a, a single family home, actually across the street from 1020, uh, bought it before the, they announced the soccer stadium. Then I also uh, bought a, a duplex out in Cherokee Triangle, did a little bit more work on that one. Uh, and then uh, that property, 1027 East Main, uh, became available. And, and it's sort of an interesting story. So w- when I bought the first property, 1023 East Washington, at that time, I don't know if you guys were around, but next door to it, just west, was this condemned home that was a friggin' fire hazard. It was literally, it had all these tax liens. It had... Uh, all these like unpaid taxes and, 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 and unpaid insurance and all this stuff. And so the city took it over and they raised the property, mowed the grass, and they put it up for an auction, like a real auction, you know, where you're sort of in, I want to pay, like one of those kind of things. And they did it the Friday of Memorial Day weekend of 2016, which is the worst day yeah. ever to do an auction because everyone's, no one's in town. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't in town, but I and but because I owed the uh, owned the property next door, I said, you know what, I should go after this. So I hired a lawyer. I told him what I wanted to bid, and I told him fifty three thousand dollars. And so he went, and a bunch of people were throwing out numbers. He didn't say anything, and eventually he got down to two people at around forty five thousand dollars. And they went back and forth, and then one person was at fifty. Then my guy said fifty one. Then the other person said 52. My guy said 53. And then the other guy said 54. And my guy, my lawyer said nothing. And I lost the property. And so after that experience, I, I realized like, wow, I, I knew what it was worth. I just didn't, I didn't have the right number to win the transaction. And I, I'd done M&A, but M&A is not an auction where you're literally like throwing out numbers and it's like, you know, you're buying cattle. It's like, oh, there's a process. And so when 1027 East Main became available, it was a similar transaction process. It was an auction, but instead of, you know, you're in a room and you're throwing out numbers, you had to provide a number by a certain uh, time period. And you had to note 
what your bid was, and then you had to note how high you were willing to go above your bid. Um, and so I kind of went into it, and I was like, okay, I, I learned my lesson on, on 1021 uh, uh, East Washington. For 1027 East Main, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go big. And it wasn't big as in it was irrational, but I was like, I'm going to kind of come in. And then I, I said, I think it was 150 and I'd go up to 200. And that night, my, my real estate agent called me and he said, listen, you're not going to believe this, but um, the agent has said that your bid is the bid they want to go with, but someone bid saying that they would, their bid was simply, we'll, be, we'll pay $1,000 more than the highest bid. And the sellers were pissed because they wanted to, that wasn't sort of true to the process of the transaction. And they want to know if you'll pay 201. And I said, absolutely. And so I got the, got the property and I literally been spending two years developing it. And so as you probably have seen, cause you guys have been down the street. I mean, when, it, when I bought it, it was a mess. We got rid of the, the, uh, the garage. I don't know if you've walked back there, you should, but it's now a effectively a carriage house. We, uh, you know, the width of it was the, the garage was, was the entire width of the property. We've, we've made it less wide. So now you have a straight uh, path, pedestrian path from Maine into the alley, which is shared with 1020. And so that was sort of my, my, my entry point into, into development. How did you come up with the concept of what you're going to place there? It's some Airbnbs yeah, and a potential was, so, urban lounge. Yeah. Is so, that- I mean, it's, it's like a lot of things, you know, it's sort of a gut and, and partnership. So I knew fundamentally when I bought it, I was like, the, the, the location's amazing. What, what I'm going to do with it, I'll figure that out. Uh, I, I knew that Airbnbs in general were doing well. Just if you sort of just look at the data, you know, the number of hotels we have per capita here relative to our peer cities, you know, Nashville, Indianapolis, Cincy, whatever. So I was pretty confident that was going to work. And then I wanted to just diversify the uh, income profile of the of the asset. I didn't want to just be 100% Airbnb because, you know, you just want to have a little bit of flexibility. And so I, I sort of said, like, what would be sort of synergistic to that? Not that it's like a crazy enterprise and there's a true, true, true synergy, right? But nonetheless, I figured, okay, what could I put in there? And so I, I got connected with some brokers, some commercial brokers. I'm sure, you know, you guys know that world, obviously. And then picked one and then um, they found me the tenant. And then negotiated with them, uh, reached an agreement on sort of what I was providing, which is sort of more or less a white box is sort of the industry term. And then uh, initially it was going to be Airbnb, the bar, and then I was going to actually have some rental units too, like that. I was going to f- rental, but then I sort of realized like, my highest and best use is, is more with the Airbnb. And I can always go to the, the rental thing later, right? Um, so that it was just, and then just the location and with 1020 being there and the alley, it just, it just felt like, you know, having something beyond just housing made sense. And as you may know, that's specific intersection. I call it a frogger. And the reason I call it frogger is if you're trying to cross the street on the, on the South side of Maine, walking North, you got to watch out big time because you got cars (laughs) flying down Baxter, flying down story. And so the city has obviously recognized this and they've earmarked about $1.7 million that'll be put to use, I think, at the end of November of this year, where they're going to slow down the traffic big time. They're going to put in stop signs. They're going to bump it out. And so it'll be a lot more pedestrian friendly. 
That's awesome. Yeah. And so it just, it all just made sense. And then just that whole corridor, if you just go right from, you know, East Main head West, I mean, there's the Barry Woolley building. That's now what Earl Weinbrenner bought, which is now going to have the Ed Lee restaurant. There's going to be what Camposano is doing at the thing next door to the coffee shop. I mean, there's nearly marketplace. I mean, there's just a ton of investment and fundamentally there's going to be a ton of, housing coming online in this area. So in, in five years, like it's going to just be way more residential. And so why not have a bar? That's awesome. Yeah. And going about, you know, learning the intricacies of development and real estate, you, do you have a background in real estate? How'd you learn um, that this was a possibility? Was it just a lot of Google searching? Um, No, I mean, I I have a a background in in finance and business. I went to business school. I, I worked in as a consultant before business school. Um, strategy consultant. So, you know, real estate to me is just, it's an asset class, just like investing in in stocks or in bonds or in startups. I mean, you just kind of pick your asset class. It's unique among asset classes because you can put a lot of leverage, you can put debt on there and you can depreciate the hell out of it. And you can take, you know, your interest expense. And and so it just has these attributes that are, that are unique. It's not as liquid as a stock. If I buy Amazon stock and I sell it tomorrow, I get my money tomorrow with real estate. Obviously it's, it's not like that, but it's just something that I've always wanted in my portfolio. And I was always uh, in, you know, in, in the stock market, so to speak. So it just, it made sense to kind of diversify. And I just like the, the ability to just sort of touch and, you know, kind of own it. And, and the beauty of these, of, of real estate, I mean, you just, you know, you, you, put debt on it. If you can service that debt, that's awesome. And then you, you pay off that debt and then you can recap it and you can do a cash out, which is tax-free. You know, I'm sure you guys are familiar with that. Um, so it was just, it had all these attributes as an asset class that to me just made a lot of sense to, to have in the portfolio, so to speak. How's all the red tape with the city been in your experience? Is it good? Exp- it's mixed with <laughs> yeah, developers, you know. It is. I mean, I, I will say when I speak to my friends in other big cities uh, who do this real estate stuff, like all the time in New York city doing way bigger projects. They're like two years. That's freaking fast. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe it is, but it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. Um, I think the city's, you know, done a decent job. It's just tough because, you know, COVID impacted them just like it impacted all sorts of different labor markets, you know, on the, on the real estate side, you know, you guys have seen it. I'm sure just having, human capital to do this contracting construction work, all that stuff, right. That, that slowed down. So I, I think, um, you know, it has been rough at times. I, I think where the, the, to me, the conversation is more interesting and, and I've thought about like trying to navigate this, but I, it's just, I don't have the, the time, but it's when you start to look at the real estate from a historical tax credit perspective, then you start getting into this federal government, the state government and the local government. And it gets a lot more complicated. And so as an example, uh, you know, when I was looking at my property, I was like, okay, well, I, I want to pursue the historic tax credits. I don't know how well familiar you guys are with it, but it's an amazing program. Basically at the federal level, 10% of your eligible expenses result in a, um, uh, a tax credit for passive income. On the state level, it depends on the state. Every state is different. In the state of Kentucky, you actually get a cash payment equal to, call it 10% of your eligible expenses. That wow. cash payment is taxed at the, at the federal level only. And so the way it works is you buy up a property, it's a historic property, and then you have to put in at least the same amount that you bought, bought it for. And then you know the eligible expenses are what 
generate that tax credit or that cash payment. And so as I was going through that process, I was getting guidance from the state that the windows I had to use had to be a certain type of window to adhere to this sort of historical accurateness of the building from, you know, many, many, many years ago. These were, they wanted wood windows. I was like, okay, I talked to the city. The city says, well, you need fire rated windows and they can't be wood. So I would go back to the state and say, well, the city says they need to be this. And the state would say, I don't care what the city thinks. And I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure that the fire rated windows are going to trump what you're saying. And so it's not Louisville's fault. It's just sort of, you know, a lot of different parties having different views. And so I think Louisville slash Kentucky, if they could probably streamline that process and, and sort of create less friction, which would result in more dollars coming in for this type of stuff. Because again, it's a federal program. The, the state credit thing, it actually falls, I think, under the uh, the Park Service in the federal government. It's I don't understand why, but that's where the 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 sort of the the, the operations of it come at the federal level. Interesting. Very interesting. And that property is also an opportunity zone. That's oh, another that's thing, beautiful. which which I'm I'm doing on that one as well. Yeah, if you would you mind explaining a little bit to listeners who don't know? Yeah, and I am certainly not an expert, so speak to a lawyer yes. because this stuff is 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 a little complex. But effectively, uh, during the Trump administration, um, they created this program where you could take ta- capital gains proceeds, put them into uh, an asset, and, and actually, I think you can do it for businesses. It's not just real estate. And so as long as you put in uh, improvements in, into that asset, it's kind of like the historic tax credit, greater than kind of what you purchased it for and plus more, uh, you will be able to uh, sell that entity, that asset tax-free, as long as you own it a minimum of 10 years and as long as you sell it no later than 2047. Yes. Um, so I think that's kind of the, 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 the gist of it. And the capital gains proceeds, I didn't realize, I've learned this later as I've kind of looked at other opportunities, but it's not just simply buying stocks and selling them. You could take proceeds from real estate. So you could sell a property, take those gains, put it into an opportunity zone real estate transaction. Uh, and, and then the other benefit of all this, uh, with the capital gains taxes, um, you can, uh, those are deferred. And depending on when you sold them or when you incurred them, there's a discount on those taxes. I didn't unfortunately hit that, but like if you did that in 2018 or I think 2019, there was like a 10% discount on your capital gains taxes that you paid out, which was deferred. So the ideally you get the asset up and running. And then when you get that tax bill for the capital gains that you you generated, you've got some extra cash flow. That makes sense. Yes. Makes total sense. And to our listeners, definitely reach out to a lawyer. There is a lot of minor details that come with opportunities. Just as a note. But I, I mean, I just goes to the point, government incentivizing development in specific areas. That's kind of why these yeah. rules are created. Um, big fan. Jumping back. Sorry, one other thing about government. This is one thing that's awesome about Louisville. That there's uh, the financing. I got through some of it, the financing came from Metco, which in this uh, environment is amazing. Uh, I mean, it's it's really like it's solid, solid uh, terms. That's so. great. Metco. Co? Medco, yeah, it's it's. I'm not exactly sure where the actual money comes from, but it's a it's a it's a city entity that uh, encourages development. Um, and so I think if you're doing affordable housing, which I'm obviously not, there's there's other mechanisms. And so my point is, if you're getting into that, like look at what some of the the financing resources that the city offers. Yes, 
Yeah, that's a great point. Jumping back into your career a little bit, you mentioned an M&A background, yep. consulting. Um, what, I guess, could you walk us through the career evolution um, basically sure. just straight, straight out of college. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I honestly, when I think about it, I think of it as a little bit before college. Cause I think okay. a, a lot of, uh, behaviors are sort of developed over time. And so like, even in, in middle school, I was working as a caddy at Louisville country club. Uh, I was, you know, I was a video clerk at Kroger, which videos don't exist anymore. Um, I worked at a nursing home. I was a lifeguard. And so there was just, you know, my parents were very, they didn't force me to work, but I don't know. There was just sort of this mindset like, hey, you should work. And um, so coming out of college, I, I was a I was a liberal arts major, international relations. So it's a hodgepodge of, you know, different social sciences. Um, my foreign language is Spanish. My mother's from Ecuador. So, you know, got to study abroad and, and just fundamentally was like, okay, I got to get into business. So uh, consulting was a good sort of entry point. I was a generalist at a at a consulting firm called Kaiser Associates. I sort of joke around. They're sort of a, a poor man's McKinsey. Uh, they would get hired by Fortune 50 companies, but they just weren't as expensive. And so they were smart and they'd hire people that were, you know, capable and wanted to work hard and, and pay them a, little, a lot less than what you would get paid at McKinsey. Uh, and so did that for a few years. And this was right when, you guys may not have even been born, which is kind of crazy to think about, but that was right when the first tech boom was happening in sort of 2000. And when I was at Kaiser, literally every week people were leaving to go to some startup. It was just nuts. And I'm sort of right out of college. Like I didn't, didn't really know anything. And so after a few years, <clears throat> uh, a buddy of mine and I sort of, I, so every, everyone was leaving kind of every week. They shut down the New York office, which is what I was in. And I either had to relocate to London or DC and I just was like, no, I'm going to stay in New York. And so I decided uh, to form my own consulting firm because some of the people that were leaving were not only going to startups, but they were starting their own firm. And so this, this uh, other consultant and I who were the same class, we started our own firm, did it for about a year and it just didn't work out. And part of it was he, uh, he's, he comes from a lot of money. And so we just weren't sort of on the same wave, wavelength about kind of what we were trying to get out of it. He wanted it to be more like a lifestyle business. And I was really trying to, to create something. And so, <clears throat> meanwhile, one of my closest friends at that time from when I first started in consulting, who was still at the consulting firm that I started at, he had moved up the ranks and was getting to the point where they were going to make him sign some non-competes. And so, he was like, hey, if we were ever to work together, now would be the time. So, that we, so then I, I switched over did uh, join developed started a firm with him and we were that first year just basically subcontractors so other consulting firms were hiring us to do, do their work and then we got our first fortune 500 client which I want to say it might have been Lexmark out of Lexington uh, I don't think Lexmark exists as a name anymore uh, it's formerly it was IBM and IBM sort of divested their printer business but we, we were we were these consultants where we would get hired by these business executives to basically do analysis around business decisions they were trying to, to, to evaluate. Do we want to enter this market? How big is the market? What's the customer segmentation? What's a competitive environment? What's our go-to-market strategy? And so we started off as just two little 25-year-old punks, you know, just getting uh, projects. And then eventually had a roster. We had a few, um, you know, FTEs, you know, full-time employees. And then we had at that time, this is before, you know, you kind of remote work, but we had, you know, a lot of, uh, a few women who were, M had MBAs, but were stay-at-home moms who wanted to do stuff. And so that, we did that for a few years, grew the business. And then I sort of realized, like, I got to do something else. 
I, I just I can't just do this for the rest of my life. And so business school just seemed to be the right move. My business partner at that time, he was married with a mortgage and I had neither of those. And so I was like, I'm, he was like, go, go part-time. And I'm like, no, I'm going full-time. Like I, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, do it. And so negotiated my exit and then applied to a bunch of schools. And then um, part of the agreement was, was I sort of stayed on as a, an employee of the company for a couple of years and they paid for part of my business school. And then I basically had six months to kill uh, between when I found out I got into some schools and when I had to start. And I'd spent about a month in New York City not employed, which was awesome. But then I was like, I, I got to get out of here. Like, this is just not sustainable for various reasons. And I'd been in New York already a while. And so uh, I speak Spanish, as I mentioned. And when I was, when you, for a lot of these business schools, what they do is they sort of invite you to come visit. And sort of you, you get to know the school even more after you get in. And as I was uh, visiting Wharton, I met a bunch of um, first years who were uh, about to start their you know, summer internship. And some of them were going to work for the Clinton Foundation. And, and I was explaining kind of what, I don't know what I'm going to do. I want to go do something, but I don't want to work crazy hours. I want to just like live somewhere abroad and like talk to the Clinton Foundation. And so they put me in touch and then I got a, a job in, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And I'd been there once before, and it, it's an amazing place, especially if you have dollars, because the dollar goes so much further. And moved down there, worked for a few months on uh, clean tech-related matters. They were trying to like launch this program to basically get Energy Star uh, savings, um, sort of uh, as a program, like similar to what we have in the U.S., but in Argentina, for energy efficiency reasons. And it, it's a long story, but they couldn't get it done because just it's a long, long story. But anyway, I worked on that and then went to school and then the financial crisis happened, which was kind of nuts. And so I went in thinking, oh, I'm going to do all this clean tech stuff. You know, I just done, did all that. And then that quickly kind of went away. And so it sort of was like, okay, what am I going to do? I'm not going to go back to consulting. I'm not going to work in a nonprofit. I just worked at an amazing one, but like, that's just, I got to pay the bills. And I wasn't going to get into private equity or a hedge fund at that time. Um, and so it was either sort of go into investment banking or go work at a corporation. And I kind of didn't want to do the corporation thing. Cause I don't know, just was sort of less lucrative and it just, I felt like banking was the right move. So got into banking and just, once you get in, it's hard to get out. Um, and so did that for about seven years and then met my, met my wife in New York. Uh, my wife's a, a pediatric oncologist. And so she took us to Memphis, Tennessee. I stayed in, in banking, switched banks. I went from Wells Fargo, Bulge Bracket, uh, advisory, uh, M&A, with a balance sheet, providing financing, not only M&A financing, but just general sort of balance sheet management, issuing bonds, equity, focused on industrials as a segment. So industrials is a pretty big segment. I was more focused on environmental services <clears throat> or what you would call diversified industrials. There are a bunch of companies out there that are like what GE used to be. GE used to be in a bunch of different industries, but they're all these highly diversified, Danaher, Dover, Roper. And so did that. And then when we moved to Memphis, I switched over to Raymond James uh, just because I didn't want to commute back to New York and went from a uh, bulge bracket with, you know, the ability to provide financing and, and do advisory to just advisory. And it was, it was uh, focused on security as a segment. So think guarding businesses, alarm monitoring, video surveillance as a service. It's a highly, highly uh, attractive uh, end market for all private equity because it does well in all cycles. 
economic cycles. In fact, it does really well in the, when the economy does poorly because people spend more on security-related matters. And so did that. A lot of, a lot of these businesses are recurring revenue business models. So it was, it, I learned a lot. It was sell-side M&A, hardcore, but just for various reasons, it was just not a fit. And my wife, ironically, got a, an offer at the University of Louisville to join the faculty. And so I said, let's do it. Let's move. Uh, I'll figure it out. The day my, my bonus hit my bank account was the day I quit at, at Raymond James, walked in and was like, I'm out of here. And uh, that, was a, that was a fun conversation. And then moved to Louisville. And then I kind of took my time, got into some of the real estate stuff, sort of engaged some of the startup stuff. And then Google opened up an office. Um, and then they had their, they started hiring a team. And then I, I joined that team. That was Google Fiber. I don't know if you guys were around for that. Probably not. It was a it's internet service provider business. Uh, it's, it's a much longer story, but that thing kind of went sideways. And this is before COVID <clears throat> or remote work really wasn't a thing. And so I was trying to figure out, do I try and move the family to a different city so I can stay with Google? And that just was complicated for, for, for many different reasons. Uh, and I, I spent a little bit of time at Google Cloud doing some enterprise sales stuff, but it was just not my cup of tea. And then Humana had an opening on the Corp Dev team and a, a buddy of mine from business school had joined Humana right out of business school. I'd been in that, on that team for many, many years. And I reached out to him and sort of said, I know nothing about healthcare really. So I probably don't have a shot. And he basically said, no, you, you have a shot. It's, they, they know healthcare people. They just don't know the, they can't find people that can do the other stuff. And so I joined, did that for about two and a half years. And then my old manager from Google reached out to me about, oh boy, uh, almost two years ago and said, Hey, I'm forming this new team. We're remote friendly. Do you want to come back? And it w obviously it wasn't exactly like that. I saw the interview and whatnot, but, and so he, so I went through that process and then about a little over a year ago, uh, sort of 15 months ago, I rejoined Google. And now I work in uh, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a weird one, but it, it's content moderation. Uh, but sort of business strategy and operations. It's, there's a lot of just uh, business issues, not problems per se, but just trying to, to do that at scale, do it efficiently. Um, and so that's what I've been doing for the last uh, almost year and a half. Yeah, so, so I kind of had a question jumping back to your story, Oliver. You know, telling it kind of in succession like that, you're like, well, you know, I knew I wasn't in the right spot, so I pivoted and did this, or I didn't want to work with this person. I knew I needed to get out, so I pivoted and did this. And I'm sure that those decisions, right, in an entrepreneurial journey, most people's careers, you have, you know, the valleys and the, and the highs, but how did you make those decisions to pivot and know what was right for you in your future? Good question. I mean, I, you know, a lot of it is sort of like a lot of stuff. It's, 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 it's heart and mind. So analytically, hey, does this even make sense? And some of it is <clears throat> just simply intuitive, like this is not a situation I want to be in. I think, um, you know, there are frameworks that one can use. I wasn't sort of like, oh, let me use this framework and figure out, is this the right thing? No, but like at the end of the day, at least for me, and I think not everyone uh, necessarily thinks like this, and this is not like the necessarily the way to approach it, but I, I have to be learning and I have to be, evolving, whatever that means. But at the end of the day, I have to be, I'm engaged when I'm learning new, new stuff. And so if that's not happening, then the question is, what do I need to do to make that happen? And this assumes that you get compensated fairly, right? Cause you're not going to just learn for the sake of learning unless that's, you're in a position to do so. Um, so that's, that's sort of been a North star, so to speak at times. 
Um, but getting into like real estate and, and some of that is learning. Some of it's just, I know it's just, you know, you find it interesting. Like I, I like uncertainty, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think for some people they, they're the polar opposite. They like certainty and <clears throat> there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is a function of kind of like who you are and what, like what makes you tick and like what doesn't make you tick. And so for me, if I had to do the, you know, a job where I was literally just cranking out like cataract surgeries for every day, like. I bet that could be interesting, but I don't know. Maybe not. You get paid well. You get out at four o'clock. I have friends that do it. Yeah. And they play a lot of golf, way more than I do. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. Just not my thing. Yeah. I know a lot of people crave that certainty. Yeah. They have to have it. But being an, an entrepreneur and, and someone in real estate, you have to be able to thrive in, in ambiguity. Yep, right. Exactly. And so not everyone can do that. I mean, just the example from earlier, when you have a local government telling you one thing yeah. and a state government yeah. telling you another, a lot of people can't bring themselves to make a decision there on what do I do? You yeah. Know? Yeah. No one's there to tell you what to do. You just have to make that decision. So it's obviously a reason that you've thrived as, as an entrepreneur, you'd say, right? Yeah, I think, but I think if you really think about the behaviors that sort of create that capability, they start earlier. And so I have two little girls and I'm sort of in my head always trying to think like, how do I make them feel comfortable with being uncomfortable? And that's not something that is easily done and it happens over time. And when I sort of reflect on my adolescence, I mean, there were moments where I was like an awkward teenager and I'm sure uncomfortable about stuff. And I wasn't sort of like, oh my God, this is, you know, this uncertainty is amazing. I mean, it was like quite the opposite, but having had those experiences, I'm sure allowed me to sort of approach things and sort of navigate that in a way that maybe others um, have not been able to because they, they just, their, their situation might've been different, uh, so to speak. And that, one's not right and one's not wrong. It's just, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's a famous quote by a, I guess he's a psychiatrist, but he he said, there's three things you can't avoid, and that's uncertainty, pain, and constant work. No matter what you do, it's constant work. You're always going to have uncertainty, even if you have a nine-to-five job that you've had for 40 years, that business could still go out of business. So I'm, I'm glad you... Not many people from the consulting world would agree with the uncertainty part. Yeah. The, the financial minds are all about minimizing risk, minimizing uncertainty. So it's it's a nice flavor you got. Cool. Well, in coming from the consulting world, I noticed you said it w- you were a generalist. Yep. And there's a lot of talk about specializing yeah. um, or, you know, not specializing, yeah. being a generalist. Could you speak to just those differences? Yeah. And then what you think the strengths and weaknesses are of being? I mean, you know, you can't predict the future. Obviously, if you could, none of us would be here right now. Um, And so I think you can, you can, you know, not to say it's all about success and who knows what even success means, but you can do, you can be specialized early on and develop deeper, um, you know, sort of stronger knowledge versus being a generalist and have a better career and, 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 and vice versa. And so I'm not saying one, one way is better than the other, but I mean, I definitely think I've got friends who have done, been in the same sort of sector for many years. And it's like, wow, they're freaking they're like one gunshot away from the CEO of a company, a publicly traded company. And it's just like, that's what you get when you sort of do the same thing, so to speak. And obviously there are a lot of factors, right? A lot of it's luck. A lot of it's sort of, you know, your own capabilities. But my point being is by sticking to the same thing, there is, there is a benefit there. Now, you know, again, that may not be your cup of tea. You may want sort of more, more diversity. So 
for me, being a generalist coming out of college, I think made a hell of a lot of sense because I was a, I wasn't a business major. I was a, I was a IR major. And so being a generalist was like a good foundation of knowledge across different industries, different functionalities within business. And so in, in some ways it was sort of a, a launching pad. Now, again, am I a specialist now? No, but, um, without having been a generalist, it's probably much harder to sort of navigate in different, in different verticals, so to speak. Yeah. At the, at the end of the day, the world needs both, you know, and, For and sure. the company needs both. Exactly. I was curious, what, what is it like, you know, you've been a founder, you've been someone who's been, you know, at the top of the company, but you've also been a part of companies is, do you have a preference? Do you like the, the mixing of the two? Yeah, it really, um, boy, that's a good question. I think it just depends <clears throat> on one where I've been in sort of my stage of life and also the stage of life of the company. So obviously being sort of um, on the ground floor of a startup, I mean, you're, you're doing everything, right? You're taking out the trash and you're trying to like sell the, sell, uh, you know, your services or whatever. Um, you know, I, I kind of, I like to work. Um, so now that doesn't mean I don't like to delegate because <laughs> I, I don't want to do all the work. Right. And it, that's just not scalable. Um, so I think it's a little bit of both. I think, you know, it, people just have different styles of how they, manage or how they lead. I do think for me, always uh, putting yourself in the shoes of others, even if it's for like a short walk is just important to uh, one, understand what um, your your colleagues are sort of dealing with. And then two, to just set an example. Uh, now, again, what does that mean in, in practicality? Like I'm not going to, if I worked at Boeing, I'm not going to like start flying the plane if I've never flown, if I don't have a pilot's license, but you, you get my point. Like you, you know, I think you, you have to understand how the sausage is made a little bit in order to understand how do you optimize the production of it, the sale of it, the marketing of it. You know, you have to sort of know a little bit about how things actually operate. And that's just by kind of doing some of it. In terms of real estate development, do you have next, you know, do you have a pipeline or are you just focused on this one deal you got down the street? <sighs> Boy, I mean, I don't have a pipeline, but, you know, I, I like a lot of stuff, you sort of, you get in the flow and then guess what? There's more flow coming. And so there's some things that I'm sort of, that are percolating. I don't, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, it's like a lot of stuff. It's bandwidth, you know, there's just a lot going on. So right now that, you know, P0 is get this thing up and running, which is getting very close. Uh, as I've been doing that, I've been sort of thinking about, do a, you know, there's some other stuff, but, you know, we'll see. I'm not sort of, I'm not, I'm not going to go full hundred percent, like do this all the time. I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. You just enjoy having, you know, is it yeah. side, a side project? Would you say? I mean, it's definitely a side project. I mean, you, I'm sure if you ask my wife, she would say, no, it's not a side project. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is, it is. It's a side project. I mean, you know, just by the nature of it being an opportunity zone, right? Like the, the whole period is long. Like I don't, I've never done uh, sort of flipping. Uh, there's one property I bought in Portland. Actually, that was the first one I bought. And that was, I didn't do anything to it, but I learned a lot because as I tried to figure out like what I needed to do to it, I realized none of this is happening because this is just, just the pain is not worth the gain. And it just didn't make sense, quite honestly, financially speaking. Um, so, um, I don't know. I think, I don't know. Right now, I just got to get through this one. I, I do like the concept of sort of trying to use real estate to have businesses uh, 
sort of offer something that doesn't already exist, which sounds a bit nebulous, but I think that's why I love Louisville so much because it's in many ways, it, they're, they're, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's not competitive. Everything's competitive, but there's opportunity to do things that otherwise you might not be able to do in a bigger city because it's already there. Yep. And so that's kind of where my head is, is what could be done that would just be additive, not just in terms of like the financials, but more just like do something that would be kind of a utility that people would like to, 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 to enjoy, so to speak. Absolutely. And so is every deal you've been involved with on the real estate so far, have you just stumbled upon those opportunities or are you someone, do you, you search the MLS often? Uh, no, yeah. So I, the first one, it was actually, so <clears throat> Gil Holland is, is, was sort of my entry point. Like a really good friend of mine from here, uh, David Tasman, who's an amazing architect. He lives in New York. And uh, when I mentioned I was moving back, I was like, oh, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. I'm thinking about real estate. He's like, oh, you should talk to Gil. So I met with Gil. Gil and I bought this thing in Portland, learned a lot from it. Uh, and then I was like, okay, I quickly realized like I should be buying stuff in other neighborhoods and not that there isn't money to be made in Portland, but just, it just, uh, you know, for what I was trying to do, I generally try and buy stuff near where I live so I can do drive-bys, which sounds kind of nuts, but like, you know, I'm, I'm my own property manager. I'm, so that's, you know, I'm not paying myself. So I'm trying to sort of squeeze his return by kind of doing that. And so if I'm dropping kids off at school on the way back, I'm changing filters on the way home. You know what I mean? It's just sort of part of the, the business model, so to speak. So um, there's a, a an awesome realtor, Clayton uh, Gentile. He's, um, I can't remember what he, what, what it's Louisville Select, I think. Um, uh, what I forgot the name of the, of the firm, but long story short, he's sort of often been like, hey, look at this. And I'm like, wow. That makes a lot of sense. And and I've I learned my lesson sort of early on. There was a property over right by U of L where it was just it screamed rental unit. Like it was amazing. I went in, I was like, Oh yeah, let me do these contingencies, you know, da 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 and then they're like, See ya, not interested. And so I realized, okay, so for the stuff that really has a strong sort of rental profile, you gotta just come in with with uh, you know, very minimum uncertainties like you got to come with your financing sort of lined up you got to come in with no you know inspection generally and and so um you know so he's kind of thrown some stuff to me and i'm like okay that makes sense so like 10 20 70s man he he, he he sent it to me and i was i just i'm bullish on that sort of corridor of louisville and so when i saw it i was like oh yeah i gotta get that yeah so are we yeah yeah and when, uh, oh you got it i was i was gonna switch switch up a little bit. I mean, real estate's not the only thing you're invested in, you know, yep. on, on your background, you're, you've had, you invest in other startups yep. as well. So how did you get involved in that? And what is your investment process? Yeah. On the startup side look like? Uh, it's evolved. I will say just like, you know, through, through, through learning. Um, you know, I think fundamentally I just enjoy business, right? Like it's just, you know, I went to business school, not because, uh, you know, I thought it would it would sort of be interesting, but I just like thoroughly just enjoy it and, and wanted to become better at it. And so uh, startups are certainly kind of in the realm of, 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 of business. And I've always kind of going back to that uncertainty, sort of watching something evolve and grow, like you just get that more than you would at sort of a more established firm. And so startups uh, have just been more, more interesting. And, and there's obviously 
with the way the world works and tech, there's just all these abilities to disrupt and create value. And then ideally you capture that value and you monetize it, so forth and so on. And so, um, you know, some, some early startups that I invested in in New York, um, this this is actually, you can, I don't even even think it's on my website, go to tkd3d.com. It's, um, my buddies and I, we were friendly with this guy who did a lot of Taekwondo and he took, uh, sort of the, the technology that you use in movies to sort of with like a green light and you put sensors on people and they sort of move around and then that gets created into sort of a cartoon character. So we, we invested a bunch of money to do that. And we took this guy, uh, he was a Taekwondo, uh, like world champion, Steven Lopez, uh, Olympic gold medalist. And but basically, um, we created a t- Taekwondo like tutorial, uh, DVD. This is before you like downloaded stuff. Uh, it wasn't like v- VHS, so it wasn't that long ago, but it was, uh, th- that was a concept and we just sold it online. And so we did, we didn't do that well, honestly. I mean, we, 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 it wasn't that great of an investment, but I, I learned a lot from it. And so I quickly realized like people are like critical, like investing in good people. So, um, you know, one of the investments I have on there, Snackable Inc., the C- CEO and founder, we had worked together right out of college. Uh, Mariola, she's super impressive. Um, she had done a startup. Uh, it was basically, this was like 2014 uh, that I had invested in. Think of it as sort of um, kind of like Airbnb, but for retail spaces. So you're a, a restaurant. You've got all this real estate, right? You use it between the hours of, call it 6 and 10 p.m. Well, What's happening before six o'clock? Nothing. And so she effectively was trying to create a marketplace where you could sort of lease out your space for other uses. And so I had invested in that and I, I got made whole on it. So it wasn't, it wasn't like I, I made a ton of money, but I, but then she did, did her next one. And then I, I invested in that one. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of it's like a lot of stuff. It's sort of relationships. You work with people in terms of kind of the, my, my strategy, so to speak. I mean, the, the people piece, um, and then just like anything, the fundamentals of, 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 of the business, so to speak. Um, there's a startup here locally that I'm working with called Riza Health, excuse me, R-H-I-Z-A, uh, health, awesome, uh, company where they're, they're using, uh, web three and, um, uh, sort of, uh, uh, blockchain technology, for claims adjudication in healthcare. So if you look at healthcare, obviously the medical side is like a huge friggin' problem, but the payment processing is equally as bad. So if you look at like the flow of funds, you go to the doctor, you pay, you know, the doctor does the service and then they send over the claim to a clearinghouse and it gets bounced over here and they do this and blah, blah, blah. And then eventually you get a bill and you pay and it's like just, you know, the cost per claim to process is a lot. And then so with uh, blockchain, if you take all that sort of, uh, claim logic and you put it on the chain and you sort of decentralize it and you sort of uh, remove the the middleman, so to speak, the clearinghouses, you can effectively um, more efficiently process these claims. So that's kind of the, the idea. Um, so again, it's, it's people, it's ideas. Um, you know, for startup, there isn't really like a financial profile, right? It's sort of a startup. So it's sort of generally the financials are just projections. So you just got to take it with a grain of salt. 
But if you're looking at businesses, like I've, I've looked at some businesses this year locally that are established businesses. Um, you know, I'm sort of curious to, you know, at some point, not on this conversation, but learn more about some of your, your brokerage stuff, because I think, I don't know, we'll see. At some point I might want to go buy something and, and, and just operate it. Um, we'll see. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, I, I like that you talked about your strategy with investing in businesses, people yep. and kind of going back to real estate. What I was curious, you, you mentioned, oh, this makes sense. And I know you've mentioned location, yep. but outside of location, what makes you say it makes sense for real estate specifically? Yes, yeah. Yes. So obviously the purchase price, right. Um, you know, just the environment you're in, like had that property become available, call it three weeks ago when it seemed like the sky was falling because, you know, SVB had, you know, was, was going under then credit Suisse. I would have been like, no, not, not, not even thinking about that one right now. So a lot of it's just kind of place and time. I think for real estate location is, is key. But at the end of the day, like you can, if you can get something that's freaking really cheap and it's not the best location, then it might work, you know, it's, and then, and then use and zoning, um, so the, like, what's great about that location is it's zoned commercially. And so the whole Airbnb thing is a more expedited process. Like if you're taking a residential unit and you want to use Airbnb, you have to go through a process and it may get denied, especially if there's already an existing Airbnb within 600 feet over there. It doesn't matter because it's already zoned commercial. So that, that's a little bit of, of sort of juice you can squeeze out pretty easily. Um, but yeah, I think it, you know, location, valuation, sort of the attributes of the property itself in terms of zoning. Like when I saw that one, just the fact that it, it sort of was right there on the alley. You, I don't know if you've been to that alley, but you'll, you'll, you'll see it more. I mean, it's, it, I was just like, this is perfect. I mean, this is like an urban sort of, you know, experience. Like my vision, and I got to, this is not, obviously won't be my doing because Andy Bleeden pretty much owns that entire block. But that alleyway, if w- over time we can sort of make it this uh, destination where people just come to Butcher Block, they spend three hours there. We have like pop-up shopping during the holidays in the alleyway. You go there, you, you know, find whatever stuff you want to buy. You go to Cultured, get a, you know, some cheese. Come to my place, get some scotch, get a haircut, yeah, whatever. I, say, I mean, get a haircut. <laughs> there's, you know, and you just you, you know, go to the gallery and then you just have this sort of sort of new Lou marketplace experience, but over there. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. Go to 1020, watch the game, whatever, yeah. you know, yeah, kind of turn it into a little bit of a walkway area. Exactly. And, yeah. That, that'd be really cool. I think it's very walkable right now. Yeah. That's why we chose this location. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot going on. So we're excited to see the evolution yeah. over the next three, five years. Oh yeah. This corridor, it's going to, it's going to be crazy how much it changes. I mean, there's more stuff coming down the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and just thinking about Louisville, I mean, when I was a kid, the idea of walking in Louisville, yeah. that's a weird thing. Yeah. Like you take a car everywhere in right. Louisville. And, and nowadays, I mean, you can come downtown and, and walk and yep. have everything within walking distance. I think that's a beautiful value add that developers are finally bringing, you know, seeing something like Norton Commons where you can walk everywhere. Right. It's like, why isn't, why isn't that downtown? Yeah. You know what I mean? Could you talk about your experience in some of those other cities that you've lived in sure. and how that kind of contributed to your thought process of developing real estate here? Yeah, I mean, New York City is obviously one of a kind in terms of just kind of what's going on there. I mean, I, you know, I, I, my real estate experience there was more like I was looking to buy an apartment to live in, so it wasn't sort of developing, but just by living there and just seeing 
all the changes happen <clears throat> and, and also just like the businesses and, and whatnot. So I think, you know, that experience has really uh, formed my view of, of just how to think about use differently. Not to say that it's any different than Louisville, like it's either going to be a restaurant, a bar, a retail shop, but just all the different sort of f- flavors of what that can be. Um, Memphis, where, where we live for about a year and a half. Um, I don't know. Memphis is in some ways like a comparable to Louisville. Um, I feel like th- there's a little bit of convergence that's happened since then. Um, but I don't know. Buenos Aires. Uh, Buenos Aires. Yes. I mean, definitely, you know, very urban environment. Um, you know, I, I think just kind of where I've lived, I enjoy those sort of urban environments. And so, where I've invested has been sort of more urban. I mean, that's that's kind of one of the things about the Highlands uh, where we live and sort of where, where I've got a rental there. I mean, it's kind of the closest you can get to sort of urban living other than living in downtown. I would argue it's very pedestrian friendly. Um, so yeah, I, to me, I find those type of, you know, real estate assets is, is attractive. I mean, I think one way to think about it is <clears throat> if there is a, and this is maybe putting a, putting Norton Commons to the side because that is sort of an urban environment, but not in the urban core. But if you were trying to buy real estate to live in, uh, which if you do, you shouldn't necessarily focus on the fundamentals of the financial elements of it. I mean, you should, obviously you don't want to pay like way more than what it's worth, but my point is you're not buying it to rent it out or whatever, but at some point you're going to exit. Right. And so the question is, what is that going to be like? Is, it, is that going to be tough? And it'll be a function of, you know, what you bought it at and also where it's located. And I think generally speaking, again, putting Norton Commons to the side, buying in that core, you just have a little bit more liquidity. Meaning, you know, when if there is a, a major crazy recession, if you bought something right outside sort of the Gene Snyder, it might be harder to kind of transact at a point at a price point that you think you feel good with versus sort of in the core. And so that's also been kind of, you know, going back to kind of where I've lived and sort of that urban environment and just trying to sort of find assets that sort of have that profile. Cause I think generally people like to your point want to be in a more walkable type of community. And even if it's not walkable, they don't want to be in their car for 45 minutes to get downtown or, or whatever. And so that's one of the beauties of, of living in a place like, the Highlands or Clifton or, you know, any of those neighborhoods right around there. It's just, you can get to downtown like super fast. Yep. And you have a community to be involved in. And I, and I noticed you yep. were on the board of a couple of organizations. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about those. Yeah. I mean, I, so I, uh, the Bonnie Castle Homestead Association, that's effectively the neighborhood association for the Bonnie Castle neighborhood. The Bonnie Castle neighborhood is, I don't know if you know that Daniel Boone statue there <clears throat> over in Cherokee uh, Park. One side is Cherokee Triangle, the other side is the Bonnie Castle neighborhood. And so when we moved, I figured, you know, a good way to meet people, just kind of get involved. And so I, I spent a couple uh, of terms on the board, and it was great to just get to know people and, and also just get to know kind of the community, uh, sort of broadly speaking, not just sort of Bonnie Castle, but the Highlands and sort of the issues that we're facing. And part of that is just, you know, I've got two little girls, and I'm just trying to make sure that, you know, as a community, things are headed in the right direction uh, not that they, they aren't, so to speak, but just being sort of tapped in. And it's also just, you know, a, a great way to, to meet people. Um, and I, I honestly just think it's important for, for, for people to get involved. You know, now, that doesn't mean you have to, like, be on the board of the Neighborhood Association, but engage in, in some manner, right? 
Um, so I did that. And then uh, I was on a uh, bright side uh, for a couple terms, which was interesting. Um, you know, it's great, great organization, beautification of Louisville. Plus it's also <clears throat> trying to educate people on environmentalism, especially the youth. Um, so great organization and it's it's sort of quasi government it's actually part partially funded by by louisville gov which is uh i think a little interesting but yeah uh, you know i think at, at some point i want to do another some something i don't know quite what yet i gotta get through this real estate project always something yeah it's always something. yeah exactly awesome. so you went to st x correct your I, local I guy i did i'm a i'm a local guy born and bred yeah i went to uh, wilder mazik and then say next. So were you able to leverage any of your old network from Louisville growing up here in your entrepreneurial journey? That's a good question. I mean, I think for some of the real estate stuff, uh, there's a guy, Kevin Fennell, who's a buddy from high school. He's a brilliant um, architect. He uh, was like the lead designer for 21C. I've, I've picked his brain a bunch on stuff. Um, I mean, generally, not... A lot. I mean, it's 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 funny you bring that up because I was <clears throat> I was talking to someone at a dinner and they were sort of saying, you know, I want to send my kid to to Saint X because the network. And I'm like, okay, you know, there, there's the network, but like, I don't know. Like, I, I think it depends what you do and, mm-hmm. and the value of that. Um, or actually, I'm sorry, this person was selling me on Collegiate and their network, and and I was like, okay, well do you really need to go to collegiate to, to tap into that network? Like if you're a tech entrepreneur, you can probably through, you know, Louisville's like Kevin Bacon. It's like six, it's like but even more so it's like two degrees of separation mm-hmm. or three. Right. And so I'm not saying there's a, there's not a benefit. I mean, putting aside obviously the education and, but like if you're doing it solely for the network, I don't know. It's a lot of money to spend for a network mm-hmm. that I feel like you could probably cultivate organically without having to, spend the same amount of money if that makes sense yeah just figure out where they play club sports exactly <laughs> yeah uh, the co- actually collegiate has a, a rowing facility out in, in prospect and i was on the louisville rowing club and we for some reason our clubhouse we had to go and row out of the collegiates and it was very awkward we're kind of rivals but <laughs> louisville rowing club's not part of a high school but it was just awkward right. sharing yep. some other high school's stuff but yeah. i met a lot of collegiate kids yeah. through it yeah and um yeah, I'm sure there's an opportunity. Yeah, like that. well, St. X had to play out of Manuel's football stadium for many, many years. You probably you, did. You go to St. X? No, I did not. I went okay. to Christian Academy. Okay, but you know, so for many years, St. X didn't have its own football stadium. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, and part of that is I think the original one they had that like kind of they outgrew it, and then they didn't have the the funds set up to kind of set up their own, and then eventually they did. But for many years, they played out of Manuel's stadium. So I think the question was, how do I think about education? Uh, for my daughter. So I, I have this, this theory, and it shouldn't, I shouldn't call it a theory. There's just this belief that, um, my, so my daughters are, are four and six. Only one of them is, is, is technically in school. She's in kindergarten. And so my view, again, I'm not saying this is the, the right view, but <clears throat> at that age, it kind of doesn't matter, uh, unless your child has a need and need can mean many different things. You know, there's some, some needs are health, behavioral, whatever, or they have some sort of crazy interest that you just want to cultivate, uh, which would be pretty unique at that age. So my whole view has been, and my, my wife is public school up until college um, in, in New York, so it's 
you know, apples to oranges in many ways, but um, is, you know, let's, let's just have, have our daughters in, in public school. And then when you start getting into sort of that, that sort of, you know, grade level where it, it matters more academically, so to speak, because you're, you're sort of setting yourself up for high school or you're setting yourself up for college, then um, might be the time to consider, you know, paying up to kind of get more, more resources. And that doesn't mean you can't get a great education at a public school. Um, but that's general, generally how I've, I've thought about it. Cause I do think, um, and again, this is super uh, 90,000 feet because uh, schools are, can be very different, but I think generally there is a, a sort of social education that you get from public schools that you were not going to get at the private schools. And I, and I can say that from experience. I went to Mazik where I honestly, when I look back at Mazik, I'm like, wow, I learned so much more about people than I did about math, even though Mazik was a, a math school. I don't know. I presume it still is now. Um, and so that was not going to happen at, at, that certainly didn't happen at St. X because just, you know, and, and that I'm not speaking negatively about St. X, but just, you know, just different. And so I think, um, it's just at least I'd, I'd like my girls to kind of know that that's the way the world works isn't necessarily always reflected in, in the institutions that you're a member of. So yeah, to speak. that's really interesting. I definitely tend to agree with you that the younger you are, I mean, I don't have any kids or anything like that, but I, I would think the same way that at a certain age up to a certain point, it's more of a social education, right? Go in there, know what it's like to sit down and be quiet and, and make friends and be yep. uncomfortable, right? Exactly. Make them uncomfortable. And then, that's an education in and of itself. And then when it gets really time to learn exactly. the stuff that's going to actually further your yeah. career, that that's when it comes to, to kind of mean a little bit more about what they're being taught. Yeah. And not to make it up about money, but it's also expensive to send someone to private school starting in kindergarten all the way through mm -hmm. 12th grade. So you could, you know, run the NPV of, of those cash flows between K and fifth grade and then sort of say, okay, well, if I don't go private and I take that and I, you know, you, you, you get the gist of what I'm saying. So you could justify not yeah. doing it pretty easily. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I liked how you touched on the network and you brought up um, someone wanted to send their kid to a school specifically for the network. And you've obviously as throughout your career, when you mentioned, you know, being on the Bonnie Castle board, when you lived in these other cities, yep. was that a, a goal of yours to, you know, join something part of the community as like a networking thing? I, I mean, not as much. Part of it was, I was just, I was transient in those other moments of Memphis. We didn't know if we were going to be there for a while or not. I think had we really set some roots and we, because my wife was in her, res, her fellowship. Okay. Yeah. Um, New York is, it's like hilarious because they're, you know, it's like the greatest concentration of people, but there's so much more anonymity. You can live super close to people right in your apartment building or whatever, but you don't know those people. Uh, it's like the inverse in, in Louisville. It's like you live, you know, there's greater distance, uh, you know, between like your house and the next house, but you know, you're the people more than you probably do in New York city. And so, um, I, I sort of established community in different ways. It, may, it wasn't like a neighborhood thing. It was more like interests in New York. So I, I would volunteer a lot or I would, um, you know, just play sports with people through, you know, um, but it wasn't sort of like a neighborhood association, so to speak. Do you, um, just in your professional career, are you, someone who puts a lot of emphasis on networking or do you, you try to stay behind I mean, the scenes? You can? I kind of try and stay behind the scenes. Honestly, I just, there's so much going on. Um, now if I have something that I'm really trying to accomplish and I know that like, 
developing sort of a network around that is, is critical to that, of course, you know, yep. but otherwise I'm just trying to kind of do what I need to do. And through that, you develop a network and, 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 you know, being, being at a big tech company, how do you think about this shift in AI and the future yeah. of, of work? Well, the future of work, um, I think is, is happened and will continue to happen. I mean, I think some of these, Com- these big tech companies are trying to roll back some of the remote work stuff. And I get it. Um, you know, part of it's, they, they spend a bunch of money on all of this real estate. Part of it's also just people perform better when they're kind of in the same space. I think fundamentally, if you're someone in the early stages of your career, you got to be in the office, just full stop. Like you just can't learn the same way uh, by working remote that, that you can in person, over someone's shoulder, you know, it's eavesdrop. Yeah. I mean, you just, that's, but you know, so I think the, 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 the tech, um, changes as it relates to, to people working remotely. I think that's, that's here to stay. It's just a question of like what that looks like on a, on a per company level and also like a per city level. Like, you know, like candidly, I think Louisville downtown suffering because humana has gone fully remote. And so, I don't know. I don't. That's going to be a tough one to unwind. Um, the third building sold for nine million dollars. Is that is that that's pretty low for or is that yeah? Yes, yes. Yeah. It's a full skyscraper. One of the biggest oh, wow. buildings in Louisville gone for nine million. And well, they're going to be yeah. putting in ten million yeah. to you know make it nicer. Yeah. But all the vacancies. Yeah. That's just the price that came out. And if you think about that. You could not build a yeah, skyscraper for nine, for nine mil. Nine. Yeah, that's true. The replacement value would be much higher. I, I, so stuff like that. I, I don't. Why don't they just make it residential? Just make you know. I think that is the plan yeah. with the uh, fifth third okay. building. Yep, costs a lot. Yeah, but it does. Yeah, but there's need. There's demand. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I I talk to these Uber drivers here in town, and and a lot of them. Uh, there's like a solid Cuban population coming into Louisville. Mm-hmm. Part of it is just I think. Uh, refugee ministries and just, you know, there's already a, a solid Cuban population and a lot of these guys who've been here a while, you know, it's been interesting. They're like, yeah, when I first moved here, it was like $300 a month for an apartment, you know? Uh, and now it's like gone up 2X, 3X, you know? It's just inflation. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a housing sh- shortage for sure. And when you're taught, you've moved around from city to city and you mentioned you hadn't, necessarily it was more transient yep. are you in louisville for a oh, yeah. long time I'm, I'm i'm in yeah i'm not i'm not leaving unless my parents pass away and then my wife gets like an amazing job offer and even then i think i'd probably would say no and is that just because it, it's your roots or yeah. is there something about louisville I, that oh. excites you more than maybe new york oh uh, well it's a hell of a lot easier to just live and that's not just cost that's just like getting around and just navigating kind of just all the, the stuff that just you have to deal with. I think also kind of like what we're talking, like you can just have more of an impact uh, than you can um, in, in some of these larger cities. And so, um, and, and just being from here, right? Like having that sort of personal connection. I mean, I can't, yeah, I don't, I don't want to leave. So I, I don't plan to. Is that something you put a lot of weight on? Like your impact? Like are you someone who thinks about their legacy and, and the way you leave um, you know, your trail? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've definitely uh, have, thought about that now i don't know if i've done like a very good job sort of documenting it for myself and sort of like creating a plan i mean a lot of it's sort of just my grandfather used to say follow your nose 
Um, and then I used to joke, well, you, you can follow your nose or you can follow the money in, at work. And so like when I've mentored younger people, they're like, what should I do? Should I do this? Should I do that? I'm like, well, you can, you can do the Jerry Maguire move and follow the money. So I would say go to that business segment because that's where the money is being made. Or you can just follow your nose, which is, hey, you just, for whatever reason, you think this is the right role, the right team, the right person, whatever. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I definitely am a, sort of a looking down sort of the, you know, long-term as opposed to being myopic. That's just kind of, I think, the way I'm wired. Well, you brought it up earlier, yeah. like mental models and making decisions that yeah. way. Something that I've always used is, am I going to regret this, you know, when I'm 80? Put yeah. myself in my older version's right. shoes and look back and say, what would they want me to do? Or what would they regret most doing? And that's kind of how I've made some decisions. Yeah. Or do you kind of agree with that thought process? I mean, I definitely don't want to do things that, I, that I'll look back on and regret. Um, I think that in general, that's like a, a good, good rule to follow. I, I think, you know, from the, hey, what is my legacy? I mean, there's so many ways you can kind of think about it and approach it. I mean, I've taken classes on this. There's a really good book if you want to get into it called Total Leadership. Uh, Stu Friedman, awesome guy, was my professor in business school. You can do journaling. You can just literally write what you want your kids to sort of read or think about you, you know, uh, down the road. And then you sort of rewind and say, okay, am I doing what I need to do to establish that? Yeah. Yeah, that's um, good. But yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, legacy can, 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 can manifest in different ways. Uh, and just because you have, a, like, you've, you've done a lot, you may be a shitty dad, you know? And mm -hmm. so... There are different ways to sort of think about it. You can um, have different legacies with different people, exactly. right? Exactly. Here's yeah. another deep one for you. Yeah. You brought up, you know, success can mean a lot of different things to different people. What does success mean to you? Whew, that's a loaded one. I don't know, man. I think I kind of, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 right now as a parent, I mean, when you guys will go through that experience, it's, it's transformational. It is. And so you will, uh, in many ways, measure your success, I think based on, on those humans that you're raising. But the reality is, and we all know this as humans, you can't control humans. Like humans are going to do what they want to do. So I don't know. I, I think for me, it's just, I think life is short. I hate to say it, not to sound like, you know, I lost a brother a few years ago and it's just, you know, life is short. And so I think it's just trying to make the most of it. Now I'm not saying grind it out 24 hours a day. Like that's just insane. Right. But like, just do things that you think you enjoy and do them well. And, um, and, and do things that you, maybe you're not sure if you enjoy them, but try them out because you might actually enjoy them. Um, and, and, and so I guess what I'm trying to say is just, you know, push yourself a little bit. Do. Yeah. Yeah. I think for, for me, I always look at it as like how excited is that person? I feel like a lot of success comes with excitement and if it's true success, you're going to be excited you know, just sometimes going and hanging out with your buddies that makes you very ex excited. And I think that's a big success, even though it's small, you know what yep. I mean? Um, small victories. Totally agree. Yes. And it, it, with Louisville, they talk a lot about, you know, we have a lot of Louisvillians, they leave, they go somewhere else. Um, and not all the time do they come back. Do you have ideas for how could Louisville, you know, eliminate brain drain? Is that something yeah. you've ever thought about what what would have prevented you from leaving i guess boy i don't i think you gotta leave to just n know how other things operate and and so but if you're if you're really trying to sort of systematically kind of do it at scale like you just need different industries here we need a 
much stronger financial services industry. We need like, you know, we've got, I think Baird, which is doing what I would call like lower, lower middle market investment banking. We need, you know, more investment banks. We need more private equity firms, more asset management firms, just to kind of create that flow. You graduate from Center, from U of L, from Bellarmine. You kind of get on that track and you stick around or whatever. Um, I mean, that's sort of at a economic development level. Um, I think fundamentally, um, if we could invest more in some of our educational resources, if you know, if U of L, Speed Engineering got a lot more money endowed to it for call it AI or whatever. And it became a center of excellence. Again, it's just sort of attracting that, that talent either when they're coming out of college or kind of before they go to college um, to kind of prevent that, that brain drain. But I think fundamentally getting that experience is just, it's just helpful to one's own kind of development. Um, I'm in, I'm in the boat where I didn't leave Louisville yeah. and I think they both mentioned that they Cal went to Atlanta, Tanner went to Nashville. And while they were doing that, I was like, you guys got to come back to Louisville. There's so much opportunity. So I was really happy when you talked about, I guess you made the realization you could be a big fish in a small pond here rather than a little, not that you were a little fish, but in New York city, there's so many numbers. I was, I was a, like a number in Excel spreadsheets, you know, I mean, yeah, Louisville's awesome. I mean, I think it's for quality of life and having an impact. It's amazing. And it's, it's cheap. Yeah, we do have a the blitz round, so that's just three pretty rapid-fire questions. Uh, the first one is, let me scroll up, what's your favorite hobby? My favorite hobby? Oh, boy. I, I, unfortunately, I don't think I have really uh, solid hobbies in, in the sense that I've like cultivated <clears throat> sort of a, a, a skill based on an interest, but I think fundamentally I enjoy politics. I just like reading about it and sort of thinking about it and, and sort of you know, kind of just, just enjoy that as a, as a space college basketball, basketball in general, huge fan. I bleed red, uh, when it comes to, to college basketball. Um, and then I think, you know, kind of like, I like business. I mean, is it a hobby? I mean, it's my job, so to speak, but I like just sort of, you know, thinking about different startups and what people are doing and just, you know, kind of business models. I, you know, I just kind of enjoy that kind of stuff. I know this didn't come up, but you're a guest writer. You have written some articles for various publications in the area. What exactly were those about? Were those uh, politics related? There was like an, an op-ed I wrote for the CJ. And then I think maybe when I was a consultant, I wrote a article or two and then maybe in, in business school. But I wouldn't, yeah, I'm not a, a writer. I'm not sort of out there. Uh, I do believe in the power of the pen, though. I think, you know, that is in some ways an uncommon uh, method of communication in the world we live in. So, um, yeah, I think with a, with a CJ op-ed, it was basically just around some of the changes that JCPS was proposing. And I just sort of didn't necessarily agree, um, and figured an op-ed might be a, an effective way to sort of communicate that vision, uh, so to speak. Awesome. You don't do any writing in your free time, just if you need to. I mean, I do a ton of writing for like work, but yeah, in my free time, no, and I wish I had more time to do to do writing, um, but no. It's pretty full. Next question, what book has had the largest impact on your personal or professional life? So my grandfather, he was a, did a bunch of different things. I think it just, you know, 
in many ways, he was such a huge influence on me. But he wrote this memoir on World War II called Bomber Pilot. That's friggin' awesome. It's just about his whole experience, um, getting married, and then the next day, uh, you know, Pearl Harbor happened, and then he knew immediately, like, he was going to get called into service, and then having his first kid, but then going and, and flying these planes and uh, bombing the Romanian oil fields of Ploesti, and everyone, like, 40% of the squadron died. And, you know, these were, like, not suicide missions, but they were, they were kind of like... You know, a lot of you guys aren't going to make it today. And just, I don't know, just reading that uh, as a, as a, you know, I read it, I've read it a few times. I just, I think it had such an impression on me and like, wow, the stuff that this, that generation went through is just nuts. Puts your problems into perspective really quick. Exactly. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That, this sounds like, is it, can we find that on yeah, the internet? Yeah. Okay, awesome. Yeah. I'm going to definitely check that, that out. out. What's it called? Bomber Pilot. Bomber Pilot. And last one, if business meetings had a walk-up song, what would yours be? Good question. So I think um, there's, and I, you know, I'm sure you've been part of meetings. Google does this a lot, and Humana does it too. You'll have these sort of large, large meetings, and you're sort of waiting for, like, the key member to kind of show up. And so they'll have just kind of, like, music, kind of background music, and, and you're sort of literally waiting. And so I, I'd say, not to be literal, but the waiting, the Tom Petty, but more specifically the one with uh, Eddie Vedder, uh, where Eddie Vedder and Tom Petty do it together. And then if it's like my personal one, I, I really like, there's something about this song and just, it sort of just kind of fires me up. It's the, um, it's Liquid Swords by Jizza of Wu-Tan. Uh, and it's the, the Liquid Swords album. Okay. I don't, you probably haven't heard it, but li- listen. By Wu-Tang? Yeah. You're the second guest. Oh, really? To have a Wu-Tang walk-up song. Oh, wow. Who was the other one? Jim Beckett. Oh, of Reland. Oh, okay. <laughs> It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. This has been great learning more about the project down the street and your impressive resume and honestly just what you're doing in the city and have done throughout other cities. It's been awesome learning about it. Well, yeah. And I thank you for, for this opportunity. And, and obviously I'm sure we'll, we'll continue to, to chat and I'm right down the street. So when, when the bar's up and running, you guys will definitely get an invite. We'll hope, be there. Hope you'll come by. Yeah. yeah. We'll we will be there. We could do Absolutely. a part two pod in, Ooh. in <laughs> the bourbon lounge. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's a good idea. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks again, Oliver. Take care, guys. Hey, guys. It's Cal here. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the How To Business Show. If you would like to stay up to date with upcoming episodes and what we're doing behind the scenes, make sure to follow us on social media. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and our website, www.htbshow.com. Finally, If you have a story to share or some feedback for the show, feel free to contact us at htbs at gillisanteam.com. Important links for today's episode can be found in the description. From all of us on the How To Business team, thank you for listening and see you next time.